0: want to thank you for sharing with us. Oh,
1: my
2: pleasure.
0: For, my pleasure. For what? We're a long ways from India, but it's nice to know what happened there. Okay, is, is anybody going to do special music today? I was surprised last time I was here. All right. I don't want to leave anybody out. Our scripture reading today is from John... Chapter 5, 1 through 15. I'm going to be living the new living, reading the New Living Translation. The Book of John, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda. With five covered porches, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men laying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew how long he had been ill, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am trying to get there, someone else always gets in ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up the mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath day. So when the Jewish leaders objected, they said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. It's illegal to carry that sleeping mat. He replied, the man who healed me said to me, pick up your sleeping mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went to find the Jewish leaders and told him it was Jesus who had healed him. Amen. We look forward to Pastor Carl's uh, talk with us today. And so this, the podium is yours, sir. Thank you.
1: All right, once again, happy Sabbath, church. You know, some wonder, uh, you know, what is it like to go in a place like India and to minister? Well, um, we flew to southern India uh, to a place called Chennai. We came into Chennai, and then uh, from there, we uh, traveled uh, five, six hours to a place called Ango. That's way out into uh, the country. And that's where we were able to minister for that period. And uh, it's a very, very primitive setting. I mean, we're talking about uh, get-cos running around, you know, your room. And my wife hates that stuff, you know. So when we arrived, my job was to make sure all holes were blocked, you know. And I'm telling you, it looks like Christmas in our place, you know, if you were to walk in there and see all the holes and uh, all the beautiful colors. And then uh, we had uh, the reminders that we were not alone constantly because there were rats running around. And we're not talking about little ones. We're talking about, you know, good-sized ones, you know. They look like they've been eating, you know, they haven't been fasting. And uh, (laughs) when we complained... (laughs) to those, not complain just kind of brought it to their attention in a friendly manner the response was uh, oh we have them in our room too no problem we have them in our house because we were staying at this dormitory and some of the leaders of the campus lived there as well and the response was what's the problem you know we have them there too you know you learn to live with them and I'm telling you it was rather hard especially after, you know, they die and they stay there for a couple of days and they begin to smell and you still complain and they say, well, you know, we'll we'll try to get somebody to to move it, but it's not that bad. (laughs) It's like, all right, you know, what is bad? (laughs) What is bad? And so uh, we were getting by with uh, very little sleep. Uh, Usually you get to bed around 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And then you're up around 5 because uh, there's just so much to do and you want to stay up on things and you want to make sure that you're up on your prayers. And so uh, that's what you do when you go in, on a mission trip like India and you're there for two and a half weeks going all the time. So by the time you come back, you you, you, run, down, you run down a little bit uh, health-wise. And uh, I started going through my emails and I realized, oh, wait a minute, Steve sent me an email and I'm scheduled to speak here shortly after that. And so uh, if I'm a little bit behind the ball, I pray that you will pray with me this Sabbath morning. uh, Realizing that we're still trying to get our heads in the right frame of mind. Amen. Shall we pray once more? loving Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of sharing with your people this Sabbath morning. We want to thank you for your grace. We speak of the humble situations that we find ourselves in every now and then, not realizing that you left the splendors of heaven to come to this world and to humble yourself even to the embarrassing experience of the cross, not to to mention painful. And so, Lord, you understand how it is to live in humble situations. You understand how it is to give till you have no more to give. And so we ask that you will take over through the power of your Holy Spirit this Sabbath morning. And that your people will be able to leave here having experienced you in a way that they have never before. In your name we pray. Amen. We read a very interesting story this morning, and usually what I like to do is take a story and really open it up and see what is relevant to us in our time today. And this story is one that I'd like to invite you to focus with me there for a while. It's entitled, uh, Morning uh, Talk is By the Pool of Bethesda. I, I want to invite you to come with me by the pool of Bethesda. And this whole experience is a picture of grace. It's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture that you may have a hard time understanding till you come face to face with it. Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem. That's the city of the David, the city of the promise. It is the city of God. I want you to picture that in your mind because he is at home. This is Jerusalem. And the story says he came into this place by the sheep gate. There was a pool there. It was called the sheep gate because sacrifices were brought in through that gate. There they were prepared for ultimate offering. So somewhere down the line, this became the place where sinners convene. This was a place of miracle, a place of hope. This is intended as a place where sinners were washed away before praises are offered in the temple, before they presented themselves before the Lord. And it says it's called Bethesda. The name Bethesda literally means the house of mercy. It means what? The house of mercy. Please remember that. And, and it had five porches. The last time or the very first time that I was privileged to be here and share with you, we went over the number five. Number five in the Bible is not only indicative of faith, it is also indicative of grace and favor in the Bible. You remember Jesus took five loaves, and, uh, and he fed what? A multitude with the five loaves. If we look a little bit further, we realize that uh, uh, the fifth clause of the Lord's prayer is give us this day a daily bread. Isn't that interesting when you look at it? And so, in using the five loaves, Jesus was sending a direct message. He is saying that this, I'm able to provide for you daily. When we look a little bit further in Lamentation 3, verse 22, verse uh, uh, and, and 23, it says, Through the Lord's mercy, we are not what? Consumed. Right? Through Lord, Lord's mercy we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are what? They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So there we're seeing that that number five is indicative of God's mercy. And so the five porches there lend the name Bethesda, meaning the house of mercy. It says there, verse 3 of John, chapter 5, and these lay a, lay a great multitude of sick people. And then it went on and said, they were blind, lame, and what? Paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. A bunch of people in the house of mercy. They are gathered there. What an accurate picture of the Jewish nation as it existed at the time of God. God had dealt with the fathers in sovereign mercy and marvelous grace, but they, for the most part, had rejected him. A few here and there had accepted him and were saved, but the great multitude remain in their wretchedness. Israel as a people were sick. They were a sick people. And it is the nation of Israel that is being presented here. They had the law, made a boast of it, but were unable to keep it. Not only were they sick, but they were blind. Blind to their own sickness, blind to their wretchedness, blind to their desperate need, and so blind that the divine and moral glory that the one, of the one who now stood in the midst of them, it is recorded in Isaiah, they saw in him no beauty that they should desire him. No beauty that they should desire him. John puts it this way. The light was shining in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. A third word describing the condition was lame. The term lame signified that Israel had the law, but they were unable to walk in the way of God's commandments. They had the law, unable to walk according to the commandment. A blind man is able to probe his, his way, but a crippled man cannot walk. And so the Lord basically says, my people are not only blind, but they're not able to walk according to my commandment. They couldn't see me, they couldn't see my law, and they couldn't see even to walk with me. Again, we're told that this great multitude was paralyzed. This no doubt tells us that they were totally incapacitated to work for God. They couldn't use their hands to share the gospel. They were in a position where they were truly paralyzed. What a pitiable picture. First, a general summing up of their state. They were sick. Second, a detailed diagnosis under three descriptive terms, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Perfect description. Only the uh, 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 sovereign God can use so few words to say so much. There, there, there's a third here. Fourth, a word that speaks to the response of the prophetic word. It says, waiting. Waiting for the promised Messiah. And all the time ignorant of the fact that he was there in their midst. Isn't that interesting? They were waiting when Jesus was right there in their midst. Who but the Spirit of God would have drawn such a marvelous, accurate picture in such a few short lines? I wonder this Sabbath morning, as I ponder over this, could we identify with those by the pool of Bethesda. It continues in verse 4. It says, For an angel went down at certain times into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease that he or she had. It says, Now a certain man was there in verse 5 who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. Now, I, I, I started wondering uh, as I was working on this. How could those who were really sick step into that water? Remember, they were blind. They were crippled. They were paralyzed. The reality of it is the overwhelming majority of them, based on the you know, description that it is afforded to us, could not. They could not. They could not unless someone physically helped them out. So was then God really mocking them in their misery? No. I'd like to think this morning that he was rather preparing the way for that which was better, like Hebrews 11 verse 40. How do I know? In John chapter 5, Verse 6, it goes on, and in verse 5, it tells us that the man had been there for 38 years. Whenever the Lord speaks and gives us a number, it's always important in the Bible. The water of the pool really reflects the Sinaitic law, the law of God as given at Mount Sinai. How do I know? 38 years, exactly the length of time that Israel spent in the wilderness after they came under the law at Sinai. You can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. From the time that they received the law to the time that they actually came to Canaan was 38 years. So the message that the Lord is sending out to them very directly, there in the wilderness of sin that old Israel manifested, the sickness became blind, lame, and paralyzed under the law. Their effort in trying to keep the law had rendered them, And the position of which they were in. The point here is. He who is trying to reach heaven. By his own works. And keeping the law. Is attempting an impossibility. Are you with me church? He who is trying to keep the law. By his own what? By his own works. Is attempting an impossibility. You know, God has called the Seventh-day Adventist church and has placed upon us a three angels message to preach. He has given us the message of preaching the Ten Commandments, including the fourth. And if we attempt at any given time to do this by our own effort. We place ourselves, just like the nation of Israel of old, by the pool of Bethesda. We're told in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition for a very long time, We're told uh, by Ellen White that Jesus longed to exercise his healing power and make every one of them whole who were there. Every single one of them. Jesus wanted to just do a grand bonanza of miracles. He's done it before. He was just in Capernaum, and he did just that. They came to him, and he sat right there before the house of Peter. Remember that story? And the story says right after Sabbath, as soon as the Sabbath hour was over, the people came, and Jesus went right into the night, just healing everybody. It's a matter of fact, that's where we're told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story of another paralyzed man. Remember that story? He was brought by how many of his friends? Four of his friends. Listen, that's another, that's another sermon for another time. Amen? It should really come after this. So you guys have a burden to invite me back. All right? And they opened the, the, what? the roof and they lowered this man. Could this man come on his own? No. He needed what? He needed grace. He needed help. He needed mercy. And he was lowered right before God. And God did the incredible. He did the unbelievable. Listen, just follow the pattern of the stories. Jesus healed him and telling him that first his what sins were forgiven, amen. And what happened to the to to the hierarchy who was uh, sitting around Jesus? They came. They became very upset, right? And we're gonna see that the same thing is unfolding here. The very same thing is unfolding. The hierarchy gets upset after Jesus moves in the life of this man. Same better. And we look a little bit further and Jesus says, Well, wait a minute. What are you so upset? Which is easier to say, your sin is forgiven? Or say what? Wait a minute. We just read it in John 5 verse 15. Are you with me? John didn't tell his story that Matthew, Mark, Luke told. He told of another paralyzed man and Jesus says the same thing to that same paralyzed man. There's got to be a tie there somewhere, right? Interesting, but we're not going to go fully into that because I, I just want to focus my attention here. The point here, it says that Jesus wanted to heal every single one of them, but he couldn't because he didn't want to stir up the Sanhedrin which would have effectively impacted the future of his ministry. Instead, he looked at the worst case possible, end quote. We are, spiritually speaking, lying by the pool of Bethesda, my brothers and sisters, in the church today. We're in here, for the most part, paralyzed by sin, trying on our own to get right with God, of ourselves we are no more capable of living a holy life than was this sick man capable of walking. Yet we are vainly striving forward with our baggages, hoping somehow, someday to obtain a miraculous healing. In the process in the process, we have absolutely no problem trampling o- uh, over others. Over others' reputations, feelings, and our striving to obtain what we desperately need in our lives by the pull of Bethesda. God is right now moving in our midst, but He cannot do for us what He wants to do because of the limitations we have placed in our minds and in our lives based on the warp theologies that we've subscribed to and passed on. Are you with me, church? Kept moving our lives by the pool of Bethesda. You know, what is interesting with this story is that if Jesus had not intervened, nothing would have changed for this man. If Jesus had not intervened, nothing would have changed for this man. Because he had been there for how long? 38 years. He was, that was a lifetime. He was at the end of his life. And I want to let you know there's not, uh, nothing is different for us today. If God does not intervene, we'll all be lost. The good news in this miracle is that this individual... He wasn't searching for Jesus, was he? didn't even know who Jesus was. It seems that Jesus was the furthest thing from his mind. Truth be told, the Lord was searching for him. Amen? Oh man, church, that's when we get excited. Truth be told, the Lord was searching for him. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know how to connect with him he says it himself he when jesus says listen do you want to be made well and he says well every time the water stirs up right his eyes were still under the what under water under water he said to him do you want to be made whole Think about it, John 3, John 5, verse 6. Do you want to be made whole? Does it seem like a strange question that Jesus would ask? This man had been there, just think about it, for 38 years. Why then would Jesus ask him, do you want to be made whole? I think the question is tantamount to asking Are you willing to put yourself just as you are into my hands? Are you willing to trust me? Are you willing? Are you ready for me to do for you what you're unable to do for yourself? Are you willing to be my debtor? And I think The same question, if we're sitting by the pool of Bethesda, is asked of us this Sabbath morning. Are you truly willing to trust God? To trust Jesus? I think the Lord asked him the question to impress upon him the utter helplessness of his condition. Before the Lord can work in our lives, We must recognize our limitations. We must. While we console ourselves, we will do better next time. There is a sure sign we have not come to the end of ourselves. The one who promises himself that he will amend his ways and turn over a new leaf has not learned that he is without strength. And for the overwhelming majority of us, is if there is an issue in our lives, we immediately say, well, listen, I'm just going to go into this kind of a counseling. Or I'm going to fix it in this way. I'm going to fix it in that way. We really don't think of going to God. We, we're thinking of doing it by our own strength, even in the church. Even in the church. It is not till we discover that we are helpless that we will abandon our miserable efforts to weave a robe of righteousness for ourselves. It is not till we learn we are impotent that we will look outside of ourselves to another. The message that I have to bring to you this Sabbath morning, my brothers and sisters, is that we are incapable of righteousness. We're, we're not capable of doing anything right. We need divine intervention in order to keep God's law. We are that man by the pool of Bethesda. Verse 7. It says, a sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirs up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. The poor man had more faith and means than he had in the Lord. His eyes were fixed on men, not on God. He was looking to human kind of help. You know, a lot of the times we look to each other. And when we fail one another, what a failure it is indeed. Right? We're looking for someone to, to, to help us. And, and we blame other people. Trouble in the family? Blame the husband or blame the wife or blame the children. Right? It's never us. That's a stigma of sin. We get sick. Well, you know, it must be the gene that I inherited. It must be, you know. But it's never. We never look on the inside. We run into issues. Where our morality comes into question. Well, you know, and we look for an excuse everywhere. That's the way we live our lives. We're always looking to someone, somebody to lean on to get us or to improve our righteousness. But this Sabbath morning, Jesus is addressing you directly. And he is saying, do you want to team up with me in order to solve your problems? Do you want to team up with me to solve your inner problems? In verse 8, Jesus said to this man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Three orders consecutively come to this man, and every single one of them if you look a little bit closer, he is unable to do in and out of himself. Every single one of them. He's been sitting there, he's been laying there on a mat for how long? And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus tells him, immediately, rise up. Take up your bed. And start walking. But the story tells us it happened immediately. Immediately. Isn't that interesting? What made the difference over a period of 38 years? What made the difference? First rise up was a uh, preemptory command. There must be a full recognition of the authority and the immediate response to his orders. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Is something more than a gracious invitation. It is a command in one, in, in 1 John 3 verse 23. And the Lord is saying the same thing to you. He says, listen, if you believe in me, and that's what this man did. That was the difference, my brothers and sisters. The difference between the immediate and the 38 years of waiting was simply uh, belief in Jesus whom he did not know but recognize as the son of the living God. He believed in him, and because he believed in him, this power overwhelmed him and allowed him to rise up. And the Lord is saying that the same power is available to you by the pool of Bethesda today. Oh, he doesn't want you to linger in a state of depression. He doesn't want you to walk around with your head down. He doesn't want you to be in a state of suffering. Listen, the only reason that the Lord would keep you in that state is for his will to be done. Otherwise, he wants you vibrant because you are his child. He is calling you to rise up, to trust him, to believe in him to claim his promises. And he doesn't want you to do it tomorrow or the day after. He says, immediately. Are you willing to rise up the Sabbath morning by the pool of Bethesda? Secondly, take up your bed. The restored paralytic picked up his bed, which was only a rug and a blanket, easily rolled up. There was no thought of failure, no provision made for a relapse. How many there are are who take a few feeble steps and return right back to their beds? Hmm? How many of us do that all day long? We rise up and then we roll back into self-pity. We right back into it. Jesus is saying, listen, I need you to make no provision to go back there again. I need you to get up, pick up the problems. Pick up the issues. Turn them over to me and give me the power to do something special in your life. Pick up your bed. Whatever it is that you've been lingering, whatever it is that you've been lying on, whatever it is that you've been holding on to, to keep you for 38 years in that state, the Lord is saying to you this Sabbath morning, pick it up. Pick it up. Because you're not going back there anymore. Are you willing to do that? And saying, Lord, I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to be there anymore. The last state... Of such, if you allow yourself to go back there again, it's worse than it was before. Every time the Lord gives you deliverance and you choose to go back to that old bed, it makes it that much harder to get back up. That's why so many of us are paralyzed. Because we pray and we fast and we pray and we fast. I have this lady who calls me all the time. Listen, I'm doing 40 days of fasting. Would you fast with me? I said, wait a minute, didn't you just do that a couple of months ago? You want to go through 40 days again? Hey, what have you gained? What were the benefits? Listen, I'm not against prayer. I'm not against fasting. This is something that we should be doing all the time. But if the Lord gave you the victory, what did you do with it? What have you done? Thirdly, he says, walk. I like that word. It is as though this, the Savior said, You were unable to crawl into the water. Amen. In order to be cured. But now you are made whole. I want you to walk. Amen. You couldn't keep my law before. But now by my grace, through the infusion of my Holy Spirit into your life, I will write these laws in your heart and you will never be the same again. Amen. Remember he was lame. He couldn't walk. He couldn't keep God's law, and so the Lord commanded him. He says, listen, I'm going to give you the power today. I'm going to give you the power to walk with me and sin no more. That's what Jesus meant when he said to him, walk. You don't need to crawl to that pool. I am the living water. You don't need to be struggling. You don't need to be suffering. You don't need to be in a state where you're walking around as if you've been baptized in lemon juice. The Lord is calling you this Sabbath morning to walk, it means from victory to victory. Amen? Rise up. Pick up your bed and walk. As we move a little bit further, it says, On that day it was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, Who was cute? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. What, a, what an interesting change in the dynamics of this story, huh? This man had been waiting for this his entire life, and it just happened to him. And he's excited. He picked up his bed, which, as I said earlier, is not a mattress with box springs and with everything else on it on his back. No, no, no. He just had a little mat, right? And so he rolled up this little mat, uh, put it under his arm, and he's all excited, and he saw the... Leaders of the church, right? He saw the elders and he saw the pastors. They were walking around and they, you know, had their hands behind, you know, examining. He said, guess what? Guess what? Guess what the Lord just did? He just healed me. I've been waiting for this my entire life. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I mean, this is the time for what? Celebration, Right? But the story tells us that the elder looked at the pastor and said, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? What are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? And this man went, huh? Oh, that? This man was truly disappointed. He was truly disappointed flabbergasted. You mean that you're going to look at the fact that I'm holding this mat over the fact that I'm walking? Over the fact that the Lord has healed me? Oh, this man sure had a few words to exchange with these leaders. How dare you? And really define them for who they really are. But the story tells us he didn't do that. He did not do that. He just said to them, Instead, hmm, he fell upon the word of God. He says, thus saith the Lord. The one who healed me told me. I want to let you know, when you are disappointed with your church brethren, when uh, things happen uh, in a way where your very faith is challenged, you don't need to get into Theological arguments and discussions. You don't need to really try to prove the person who they really are. Hide behind the word of God. Call on the word of God. Let them deal with the word of God. This is a principle that we all can learn from. We don't need to get into the nitty gritties. Because you know what? We get dirty ourselves when we do that. Keep walking. I want to challenge you this Sabbath morning. When the Lord starts moving in your life, jealousy will develop, usually from those who are closest and dearest to you, those who are in leadership position. And when these things happen, don't get involved in the mud. Rise up! He says, listen, take it up with Jesus. Take it up with him. He's the one who told me to pick up my mat and to walk. Amen? The story says, afterwards, Jesus find him, finds him in the temple and said to him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. In John 4, verse 14. You know, it's really interesting. The Lord did something really special in his life. The Lord disappears from the scene. So this man can have a chance to do what? To express his gratitude toward God. Amen? And, and, and Jesus, the story tells us, everything that is there is there for a reason. Finds him in the temple. He finds him in the house, in the place of worship. I tell you, when the Lord does things in your life, you give him the worship that he is due. You step into that frame of mind. Hallelujah! You see, this man did not need to praise God In the place of sinners. He had to praise God in the temple. In another word, he had to have that frame of mind where he could fall at the feet of Jesus and give him praise. When was the last time that you praised God for the benefits and the blessings that are being poured in your life? He inhabits praise. And this is where we recognize him. This is where we identify. This is where we become one with him. You know, there are those of us that he's blessing every day, but we choose to stay in Bethesda. You can't praise God in Bethesda. You have to move into the temple. That is where you meet him, and that is where worship is due. Blessings can't flow. A personal relationship with the Lord can't develop till you've stepped into the temple to worship Him. And I want to invite you to come and meet my Jesus in the temple. And where is the temple? Somewhere in my Bible it says you are a living temple unto Him. Amen? Everything that you do, everything that you do should be an act of worship toward your God. An act of praise and thanksgiving toward your God. Every single one of them. Are you worshiping God? Are you meeting him in the temple and praising him for what he's done in your life this Sabbath morning? And then Jesus says to him, send no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The Lord had withdrawn from the man in order that he might be tested. New strength uh, had been given him. Opportunity was then afforded him to use it. The restored sufferer didn't fail. The Jewish critic had not intimidated him. A work of grace had actually happened in his soul as in his body is evidenced by the fact that he had gone into the house of prayer and praise and there we are told the Lord Jesus found him. And Jesus says, sin no more. It is a word for the miracle that Jesus equally performed for the suffering and that we might have failed to recognize. Grace does not ignore the requirement of God's holiness. The the law was given to us so we may sin no more. Amen? Are you with me, church? The Lord gave us the law so we may sin no more. Right? But this man was living a life of sin. That's why he was by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus, as he worshiped, as he praised God, and God says, listen, from this day forward, I have given you the power to carry this grace that I have bestowed upon you where you will sin, what? No more. What is Jesus saying to him? You're going to just keep on walking. Amen? I'm giving you the power where you never, you never need to. See, law is not in competition with grace. Grace allows us to keep God's law through the power of his Holy Spirit, which is developed through a a strong belief in him and a willingness to move forward. Amen, church? The men departed, and the story ends in a very magnificent way in John 1, verse 15. I, I love the version that you use this morning. It's very powerful. It says, the men departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I like your translation because it says he went back to the leaders who had questioned him. And he said, listen, I... I, I, I did what? I found him. And so what he did in essence, he shared a personal testimony. He said, this is what Jesus has done in my life. This is how he has impacted my life. And he preached to them. Right now, he had worshipped. He became one with Jesus. They identified one with another. Now he was able to go back and say, listen, I have a personal testimony to share with you what the Lord has done in my life. See, you can't start preaching the gospel till you've developed a relationship where you can personally reflect and relay what God has done in your life to others. Can't do that. You don't have a message. If you're just opening the Bible and reading verses in and out, you don't have a message because the Lord has not done anything for you personally. He needs to do something intimately in your life and thus give you the power to go back. And I said, I know he's real because this is where I met him. This is what he's done in my life. And no matter what happens in the future, I will stand on that ground. I will die at that cross. Do you have that relationship with your God? Do you know him in that way? Because unless you do, you can't go back and share his word with anyone. And he wants to have that intimacy with you. He wants this Sabbath morning to meet you in the temple and to give you the power to sin no more. See, once grace touches your life, you have no more room no more room in your life to judge anybody else you have no more room to look down at anyone else because you know who you are you know where he found you you know what he's done in your life amen you know how ungrateful you are and you just when I help somebody else get what the Lord has done for you so there's no more room for judgment there's only room for praise praise and Thanksgiving you know we were just in India and I came back and I and I'm just so grateful and I said Lord thank you for what you've done in my life that I was able to go there and and learn so much and be able to share a little bit of the blessings that you have poured in my life and that of my wife and so forth because the Lord has blessed us with so much we have so much to give. And you go down there and you see the way that these people are living their lives. They don't even have doors. Can you imagine living without doors? It's a little curtain. Uh, a lot of the villages that they pull, the curtain and they're buying, totally vulnerable. Vulnerable to nature, vulnerable to uh, violence, and the women there. We, we, we were sitting under a tent and i started looking for teenagers i saw teenage boys with teenage girls they were few and far between there were a whole lot of them uh you know at uh, a young age you know 10 there were a bunch of girls running around and i started looking what happened to the teen years And then I started looking around, getting a little closer, getting to know them a little bit better. They were there, but they grew so fast because they got married so young, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And they started having babies and so forth. And they just lost all their teen years. And before you know it, they look like a bunch of 30, 40-year-olds. And by the time they're 30, they look like they're 60 and so forth because they're just abused. And this is the, the environment that they're in. And I said, Lord, thank you for my girls and the fact that they were able to enjoy their teen years and get to know you a little bit better. Thank you, Lord, that you you allow me to grow up in an environment where I was able to really connect with you without the depression of having to live out life the way that these people have to do it down here. We don't understand our blessings. And then as we were driving around, I realized if I drove and... America, the way that they're driving down there, somebody would shoot me in the spot They think I'm a madman. You know, just cutting in front of people just a couple of inches, right? And they have no problem with it, totally comfortable. And I said, man, Lord, how do you give them the patience to do that? I realized they have so much more above us. Very patient. Very humble. And there I learned patience. There I learn humility. You see, God meets us where we are. And from there, he says, rise up. Pick up your bed. I want to take you to a higher ground. As I close this morning, I want to ask Is there somebody who is saying this morning, listen, I'm tired of sitting by this pool and waiting for the obvious. I want to rise up this morning. I want to pick up my life in the name of Jesus and I want to move forward. Is there such an individual? Is there someone who want to answer to that call? Amen, my sister. I want to rise up, Lord Jesus. I don't want to stay where I am. I want this year to be my year, Lord Jesus. A year where I, I, I'm one with you. I take full benefit of the grace, of the blessings, and Jesus is ready to do mighty things in your life. I want to let you know that this Sabbath morning, He's going to give you the power immediately as we leave this place, immediately to rise up. It's offered to every single one of us to rise up, the power to rise up in your own sphere, but you will rise up. Let's stand up as we have a closing hymn. Number 111. Number 100, it took a miracle. Number 111. I'm going to ask the man with the beautiful voice to please come forward a little bit and lead us into that song. Would you do that for us? The man with the beautiful voice. (laughs) It took a miracle.
2: My soul came and made me whole. It took a miracle of love and grace. Our Father
1: our God, we want to thank you for the miracle of love and grace that have brought us here today to give you praise. Loving Father, we want to thank you for you came and searched for us in Bethesda. When we didn't know you, Lord, when we couldn't identify with you, you came looking for us. When we were looking into our own selves, Lord, and when we were looking into others to give us a hand, you came, Lord, and made us whole. You caused us to rise up, to pick up, Lord, our lives, and to walk with you in grace. And to that end, we want to say thank you this Sabbath morning. As we leave this place, we ask, Lord, humbly, that none of us will go back to our old bed, to our old life, but we will continue to move. And your power to sin no more. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.